show with two retired detectives that were in the thick of New York crime, fast and hectic. They got some stories and some jokes, even an interview with the most popular folks. Off the cuff, off the cuff, one episode just saying enough. In an interview too It's maybe the best thing you can do Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And with me tonight, and almost every night, is my co-host, straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? Doing pretty good, Billy. How about you? Great. You know, I went out last night with a bunch of guys that I used to work with. And, you know, it's funny. This job, like unlike a lot of different jobs, we're around sometimes for 20, 25, 30 years, 35 years, you know people. And that's not that's unique, I think, to police work. And it was guys that I worked in the 2-3 squad uh, during the years 97 to 2002. And uh, I just want to name all of them. Uh, Billy Kiley, uh, Tommy Lombardo, Scott Wagner, um, John D'Alessio, um, Mike Yolaco, uh, Chief Cutter, Paulie Morrison, who's the uh, vice president of the, the DEA. I hope I didn't forget anyone. I think I got it. the picture. Do you got the picture? Yeah, and, and we took a picture, which which is pretty damn amazing. And uh, let me let me find the damn thing, and I'll, I'll pull. There we go. And we all had dinner together, and it's just like it's you know you don't see people for years and years and years. And I also want to shout out to Mike Yulako. Mike Yulako's got a thirteen year old son. His name's Paul Yulako, and he watches our show all the time. So Paulie, I want to just shout out to you. Thank you so much for being a big fan of police off the cuff. And your dad was a great cop, a great detective, a, a medal of valor recipient. And uh, welcome to the, uh, you know, NYPD and the police off the cuff, real crime story families. And these are all my buddies from the two, three and sitting down is chief cutter, who not only was a great chief and a great uh, detective cop and all of those things, but he picked up the check. So he was our hero last night in more ways than one. But I just wanted to shout out to all those guys. Is policing is a unique profession where, you know, and Philly, I'm sure you know the say you could say the same thing that guys that you haven't seen in years, you run into them, it's like it was yesterday. Absolutely, Billy. It's just uh there's a certain brotherhood uh that you develop over the years. And um it's good to to be retired and to see the guys and reminisce. And there's some some guys that, that Chief Carter. What a gentleman. He was such a great guy. I knew him. I was in a 6-0 squad in Coney Island. He was in a housing major case squad. I believe he was a lieutenant at the time. And uh, yeah, I think he was a lieutenant in the housing major case. And uh, just a great guy. They used to, anytime we had a case in the projects, they would come in with an army of guys. And uh, they really, really uh, were good detectives, uh, good people. And uh, later on, I wound up working for him when he was an inspector in the intelligence division. He actually gave me my interview and uh good man. He used to call me plastic head because I wore a <laughs> lot of gel in my hair, but we had a few laughs about that. But yeah, there's it, nothing like the, uh, the camaraderie of, uh, of the brotherhood of uh, the NYPD, whether it be uh male, female, uh, just really, uh, 
you, you make bonds that go, it just, it takes you through your life, you know? 100%. And you know, all you folks, I, I, I went live this morning at about the 1220, 1230, or I guess early with uh, coffee with Ken. And I just want to thank all you guys that show up there every day. It's unbelievable, man. It's like, I don't have to go to a therapist. That's my therapy every day. I just, I just coffee with Ken. And I talk to you guys, you guys come in. It's all love. It's a love fest. It's so fantastic. And uh, people from all over the damn world. I'm, I'm so flattered to have that show and to have tried that, that tried that show. And all people come in, as I said, Ireland, England, South Africa, Australia. I'm like, Oh my God. Some people it's, in the middle of the night for them, you know, and it's like, it's an awesome, awesome thing. And I just want to thank all of our fans. I call you guys our fans. I know some people take umbrage to that. They Oh, I'm a subscriber, not a fan. If you're following the show, you're a fan. And I appreciate you being a fan. And I'm a fan of a lot of things myself. I'm a fan of you guys. And I just want to thank you. I can't thank you enough for supporting this show. And, you know, the year's almost over and we're going to be going into 2022 and Philly and I got some, and Mark DeMeo is doing his own show, Police Off the Cuff After Hours. We got some amazing things planned for 2022, and we're growing, and we're growing bigger and bigger and bigger, and we're growing because of you guys, because you guys, you know, you hit that button, you subscribe, and you support us, and you watch the show, and we laugh together, and we cry together, and that's an amazing thing. It's such a great feeling, Bill, when people that you know, uh, they give you a compliment about the show and they tell you that it's great. And, and, uh, but when you have the, uh, the reach throughout the world, like you said, when we have people in the, in the chat, uh, commenting from Australia and Germany and, and the UK, and it's just, it's really, really something. It's a great feeling. I can't really put words to it. Just, it's very flattering, I guess. And, uh, knowing what we did in, in law enforcement, um, this is like a continuation of it. And it's, uh, it's sort of like an attaboy, I guess we would call that on the job. We're getting an attaboy for, uh, you know, putting something out there, our opinions, our professionalism, people are giving us positive feedback and, uh, I don't want to get too much into a love fest, but yeah, it's a, it's really a great feeling. I agree with you, Billy, on that. It's uh, very flattering. And thank you to everybody. And keep subscribing. If you like our channel, hit that subscribe button. That's what's going to keep us going. And uh, we're like a freight train, Billy. We're uh, not going to stop us. <laughs> you know, it's the amazing thing. It's like when when someone actually recognizes you on the street and says, Aren't you the guy from Lee? And it doesn't happen often, but every once in a while it happens and it's like, oh my God. Yeah, I am. Oh, I like the show. You know, I like that. You know, and even when I was on the show, The Perfect Murder, I was going out to Montauk the next day and one of the big shows was on the night before. And I said to my son, Jake, you think I should wear sunglasses out in Montauk? And of course I was kidding him. He goes, dad, don't worry. No one's going to recognize you. <laughs> but it's fun. It's fun to just uh, play with it, you know, but uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we got some great stuff coming up, too. I just want to mention Monday night at 9 p.m. We, we we're gonna, I think we're going to have a great show. We're doing a Christmas show. And it's, we're not going to be there with elves and singing Christmas carols or anything like that. We're going to be telling Christmas stories from our time on the job, or right before, and, you know, stories that, hap that happened to us personally. And I have, uh, of course, Philly's going to be with me, but I have Mikey Heinrichs, one of the most highly decorated uh, – detectives in NYPD history. He's going to be on a show, tell a Christmas story. I just asked Michael O'Keefe to come on today and he jumped at it. He goes, Oh, I got a great story. Everyone has a damn great story. And uh, this is Mikey Heinrichs's rack. And he got a kick out of it because someone sent him 
a picture of his own rack with the polish my rack uh, sticker from our, from our website. So I'm going to immortalize Mikey Heinrichs with that crazy rack, 212 medals, two combat crosses, two medals of valor. And you can see it. It's like, I said, Mike, if that was my rack, I would wear it every day. I'd wear it shopping, see if they'd give me free food. I'd wear it into bars. They'd be like, what the hell is that? Oh, that's my rack. You want to polish it? <laughs> he, he earned it. Uh, Mike is a good man. I, I caught a couple of homicide cases, worked on a few homicides with him when he was in the Brooklyn South Homicide Squad. Yeah. Uh, true gentleman. Good people, good police. That's all I could say about him. You can't say enough about him. He's a great guy. And He's I'm the looking best. forward to seeing him on Monday. CR Patrick, thank you so much for your support, for your $5 super chat. You're, you're more than kind. Thank you so, so much. All you guys with the green uh, font, that means you're members of the Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories YouTube family, and we appreciate you guys so much. Thank you for supporting us. And, uh, I can't say enough about that. It's very important, and and, and uh, we love you guys. Thank you so much. You no, know, I want to interject something about the Christmas show. Sure. You know, the reason I think that uh, every law enforcement officer has a Christmas-related story is because there are no holidays when you're in law enforcement generally. Uh, Christmas, I can remember working many, many Christmases, New Year's, Thanksgiving's, Easter, whatever it is. Uh, a lot of times during the course of the year, you might get one of the holidays or two of the holidays. And as you have more time, more seniority, as you get uh, more on the job, you know, more years on the job, then you might have a, a, a holiday pick, vacation pick, so to speak. But uh, yeah, I think that anybody that's in law enforcement for a number of years is going to have some type of a Christmas related story. And we're going to have some fun with it, too. 100%. You know, guys, a lot of stuff has been happening lately. Um with with the media and we're always highly critical of the media as we should and everyone should be critical of the media because the media creates narratives that may or may not be true according to their, to their political bent and that goes for the left and the right but it's gotten to be so epidemic that it really hurts our country it really does you know uh and one of the we're gonna cut we're gonna go over a little bit more of alec baldwin's interview and Phil and I and uh, many other uh, YouTube content creators found that particularly egregious as like a bunch of smoke being blown up our proverbial ass by, you know, a, a, the friend, a friend of Alec Baldwin and a network looking to just make money out of throwing some mush out there that totally wasn't true. And I mean, I find it, you know, I find it like they almost take the public as being stupid. When they put this stuff out there, and you're supposed to, oh, yes, I believe this. You know, it's a bunch of crap. It really is. And it's like, and we're, we're forced, well, you're not forced, but we'll, we'll, we have to listen to this as if it's true. And it's like, it's really pathetic. It's really pathetic that they are in cahoots with people based on friendship or based on a political bent. That interview that George Snuffleupagus did with, uh, Alec Baldwin, and I'm saying Snuffleupagus to be obnoxious because he's no better than the guy on Sesame Street. It's really disgusting. And he goes on the next day on Good Morning America and says what an intense interview it was. Oh, my God. It was the exact opposite of being an intense interview. It was garbage. That's the French word for garbage. You know, <laughs> you know, Billy, uh, the freedom of the press, the reason that it's there, freedom of the press, that's a very powerful, strong statement. Freedom of the press is it's it was put in place by the founders to 
uh, checks and balances on politicians and just uh, for the public in general. And over the years, and especially it accelerated in the recent last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, they've now become editorials. They've become uh, soap opera stars, so to speak. They don't report facts. They don't report the truth. They give a lot of opinion. And it's getting worse and worse as time goes on. And you laid it out so beautifully there. Why did ABC and Stephanopoulos do this, what they thought was going to be a favor for Alec Baldwin and let him air what his side of the story was? Because he saw he wanted to get out in front of it. He must have contacted them and they arranged this uh, this interview that was obviously choreographed. choreographed. And I know that there had to be uh, you know, a conversation between Baldwin's attorney and Stephanopoulos's people, or what do you call him, uh, Snuffleupagus? Snuffleupagus. <laughs> yeah, Snuffleupagus. They, they had to have conversation and parameters built into the interview before it took place. Uh, I don't think that anybody with any kind of intelligence would disagree with that. So, again, it blew up in their faces because I think the general consensus was is that when he went through that interview, he kind of uh, put a lot of the blame on other people other than himself. And we all know the gun was in his hand. And then at the very end, when he said he felt no guilt, I thought that the whole house of cards just fell in right there. So we're going to take that apart tonight. We're going to look at it. And you, you brought up such a great point, Billy, that the media plays a, a huge role in these, uh, these narratives for uh, whether it be a political agenda whether it be for a criminal agenda in a case like this, obviously he could be facing criminal charges. And because he's a Hollywood famous actor, he has the, uh, the beck and call of the media at his uh, fingertips to, uh, to get his side of the story out, so to speak. And I could, you know, it's clear that it was just an attempt to get out in front of it before there's going to be any press releases, criminal charges, uh, you know, lawsuits. He wanted to get out in front of it. And I don't think he did himself any favors, by the way, with this whole thing. No, it, bl it blew up. It blew up in his face. You know, it really did. 100%, 100%. You know, Real with Robo, thank you for the $5 super chat. And I will happily answer this question. So now for business, what charges would you all get Alex on for not checking the gun? Do I hear reckless homicide, discharging of a weapon? There's two possibilities. He could be charged with manslaughter or he could be charged with criminally negligent homicide. And that is really a uh, heavy-duty legal issue that attorneys would have to argue over, and I'm sure the district attorney in Santa Fe is weighing charges right now, but before they even consider any criminal charges, they're going to make sure they do an extremely thorough investigation. They want to uh, dot their I's and they want to cross their T's. So they're going to take their time. This may not come out until March, April, you know, May even. You know, they're going to do a very, very extremely thorough investigation because let's face it, if they do, if they're going to be charges, they're going to be facing uh, the most expensive attorneys that money can buy. So they're going to be facing the A-team because you don't think uh, Alec Baldwin's going to hire legal aid or legal. He's got, he's got lots of money. So he's going to hire a legal team. He's going to hire legal investigators and, you know, their their whole job is to create doubt, but there's a lot of potential gross negligence in this case, and we're here to take it apart. 
You know, obviously, Billy, this was a horrible, horrible accident. I don't think anybody went into that movie set that day with intent to harm or kill anyone. I think that that's clear. But, you know, you have to look at the legal boundaries of this whole thing, which is there was an obligation by people on that set to keep everyone safe. The obligation lies on Baldwin since he was an on-set location, on the location producer. It was on the armorer. It was on the directors. It was on a lot of people. Now, whether or not there's going to be culpability uh, for Alec Baldwin, where there's going to be a criminal charge, I think that's yet to be determined. However, the gun was in his hand. He did have a responsibility to check that firearm to make sure that it wasn't loaded with a live round. The armorer should have at least displayed that to him beforehand. What they would do is they would open the gun, uh, remove all the shell casings, show if it's a blank that they're using. We went through this with Steve Gardell previously. There's a BB that's inside with no gunpowder. They would shake it each individual round. And if it's a dummy round, it just... Uh, it, it's very, very light. It just looks like a, a, an ordinary bullet. It has no prime and no charge on it. And you can tell the difference. And anytime that you're handed uh, a firearm on a set, you need to have uh, the armor inspected. And then you have the obligation yourself to say, okay, either show it to me or you do it yourself. Now he's been in hundreds of movies. He says he's handled firearms and he's fired shots from real firearms many, many times on the set before he went through whatever training it was that he received. So he's basically showing that he does have some culpability if he didn't check that firearm. So right there. Now, again, we talked about, uh, obviously it's an accident, but then there could be, uh, you know, there was talk of a conspiracy theory where someone uh, slipped in the real rounds into the thing, either to bring uh, obviously, uh, chaos or carnage to the, to the set. I'm going to play a little bit of his interview just to get the flavor of what they were uh, talking about. And on the screen here's Alec Baldwin. I think that, um, there's a criminal investigation and that could be a while. Uh, there's all kinds of civil litigation and I felt there were a number of misconceptions most of it from sources I really wouldn't concern myself about, but a couple that I did concern myself about where there were these authoritative statements about this is what happened. The sheriff's department hasn't even released a report to the DA yet. The reason I wanted to sit down with you is because I really feel like I can't wait for that process to fit to end in February, March. I mean, I'm not asking them to speed it up for my benefit. That's ridiculous. But I am saying that they're going to do what they need to do. And I wanted to come to talk to you to say that I would go to any lengths to undo what happened. I would go to any lengths to undo what happened. I think the big question, and the one you must have asked yourself a thousand times, how could this have happened? Well, there's two things I want to say about that. One is that when I talk about this, my concern is that I don't sound like I'm the victim. Because there is a victim. There's a woman who died, and my friend got shot. He's my friend, and she was a new friend. I met her, and we worked together on the some of the mapping out of what we we're going to do on the film, which, you know, in the movie terms, if you go make a movie with Scorsese, you and the DP don't sit down. And they solicit your ideas of how to make the film, you know what I mean? 
in the case of Helena, we sat down collaboratively and talked a lot about what we wanted to do in that uh, a precious amount of time we had. But um, I, I, I want to make sure that I don't come across like I'm the victim because we have two victims here. And the second thing is, is that all of what happened on that day leading up to this event was precipitated on one idea. And that is that Helena and I had something profound in common. And that is we both assumed the gun was empty other than those, you know, uh, dummy rounds. I want to get into more detail on the day in a minute, but let's take a step back. What was it that drew you to this project in the first place, to Rust? I'd worked on a project with Joel before. Joel Susan, the Susan, right. He, he did this movie, Crown Vic, that I produced. And uh, Joel and I stayed in touch. We're friends, and I loved Rust. He said, I want to send you this. And I read it, and I said, I love it. I love it. Rust, a low-budget Western, tells the story of an aging outlaw on the run with his young grandson. Baldwin, the film's star, is also one of the producers. Very excited. Very, very, so excited that we finally got this made because every independent film has many false starts. You know, and when it finally goes, you finally get, you feel like a plane. When you finally get some lift under your wings, it's very, very gratifying. I am a purely creative producer. My authorities as a producer are casting and script, which are actually. I find that pathetic because there he is trying to absolve himself of any responsibility whatsoever but by defining his uh, duties that have nothing to do with safety, nothing to do with the, the uh, cast or the crew on the, on the movie, nothing to do with anything that has to do with potential open himself up for liability as being a producer. No, I just, I just wash the towels. You know, it's just, it's just a pathetic statement. Married to the role of being a lead actor in a film. So you're not the kind of producer who's looking at the line item of each budget. No, 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 no. There, there, there are basically two types of producers who are who are really in charge of production. People that raise the money and the people who spend the money. My consultations or approvals were completely about casting and about the script. I don't hire anybody in the crew. I don't Not even the cinematographer, no one? No, no, but he will apprise me of what he's doing. And he'll say to me, I got... You know, you know Phil, I just feel so um, that he's just so trying to absolve himself of any... Um, liability whatsoever. He's just trying to um, totally take him out of having anything to do with this, and it's really, it's really sort of, uh, it's sort of pathetic to listen to him. It really is. You know, he's uh, he's coming across as he doesn't have responsibilities, but it's clear when you're an on-location producer, producer, you have an added responsibility and a duty to protect the safety of the crew. And that's where the involuntary manslaughter charge could come in. I mean, he's an onset producer and he's saying, oh, all I was in charge of was uh, hiring and, and the, no nonsense. You're it, It's his baby. You know, it's like uh, the captain of the ship, so to speak. You're responsible for the crew. Right. Exactly. I think this is going to the part where he shows, um, Holding the gun. This this training course you do. What did she tell you? She said things like, "Remember, this is a this is a blank round, so you have to create the discharge yourself because there's no projectile. So if you shot the gun, you go bang. When we roll the camera, you got to go bang and have the gun gun snap back. You have to create that. She would give you little tips about firing, and she'd say to you, you know, when we're done, point the gun down. When we're done, you give the gun to me or to Halls. Only those two people." Dave Halls was Rust's assistant director, also known as the first AD. Seen here in this IMDB photo, he was responsible 
for keeping the production on schedule. Sometimes we would be on a set that was a very, very cramped set, and they wanted people in that room on an as-needed basis. If I'm holding the gun and they say cut, I then hand the gun to Halls if she's not there. Yeah, why Halls, not Hannah? Some people have said that only the armorer should be handed. No, 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 no. That, that's that's in, inaccurate. Meaning in, in in the protocols of the business, meaning Hannah would to hand me the gun 99% of the time, no, whatever, the, the preponderance of the time. But when we would say cut, if Hannah was away from the set, I would hand Halls the gun. Hannah Gutierrez-Reed had a dual role on set armorer and she was also the assistant prop master for the film one of the things her attorney has said is that she was hired for two positions on the film and therefore was stretched in an inappropriate way did she raise any of those concerns with you no i assume that everyone who's shooting a lower budget film uh is stretched myself included and I, I, I got no complaints from her or the prop department. I'm not sitting there when I'm getting dressed and ready to go to a scene saying, oh my God, the prop woman seemed very harried today. I didn't get a sense of that from, from, from any of the, the, the people on the film. The first time I heard that there was any problem with anybody uh, in the crew of the film was when Luber said, well, we have some issues here. Lane Luper, the first camera assistant, would email production managers a resignation letter later that night citing safety concerns. Quote, during the filming of gunfights on this job, things are often played very fast and loose. So far, there have been two accidental weapons discharges. He also wrote about concerns about reasonable rest and housing for local crew with long commutes to the set. When he quit, now, the day before that happened, we wrapped, and he came up to me and he said, thank you for the position you've taken on behalf of IATSE and the union on social media. I said, my pleasure. This photo, posted by Helena, showed the cast and crew in solidarity with IATSE, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, which had been on the verge of a strike. And Alec posted this on Instagram. And I want to say to the people in IATSE, do what you need to do. You want to go on strike? Go on strike. Because I'll tell you something about the executives. They don't give a what, what a man of the people. What a hero. What a hero he is taking the sides of organized labor. Uh, CR Patrick, again, thank you for this $20 super chat. She says, Merry Christmas, Detective Phil. Thank you for your service. Thank you so much. That's so nice. Thank That's you so very nice much, you, CR Patrick. Patrick. God bless you. Yeah, so it's... Um, Billy, he's trying He's trying to make out something that's not true. Like, he's calling Helena his friend. He only met her on this. She's a colleague. He probably just met her recently. I mean... I guess a friendship may develop or something like that while you're doing, but the minute he's done with this movie, she's, she's, she's not, you know, she's not going to be coming over his house for dinner and he's not going to be going over to hers. I doubt very highly. So he's painting a whole scenario to try and make himself look better. I mean, it's quite obvious what he's doing. And the other thing, another point I have to make, he said that now, listen, we know on the set, if, uh, the armor is standing next to the AD and he's finished and he takes the gun and, and it's quite possible you could hand it to the AD, the assistant director, and then they give it to the armor. But that's not the protocol. He said it's the protocol. The protocol is the gun goes from the armor to the actor, from the actor back to the armor with one thing that is left out of that is she's supposed to show him what is inside that firearm when you're using a real firearm? That's the bottom line. And even if you're using a dummy gun, they should give you the courtesy of showing you. Phil, Phil, but that's not a dummy thing. gun. That's a real gun. Exactly. That's a real 45 caliber revolver 
And I want to say two words to you or two phrases to you, and immediately you're going to recognize it. Before you put your gun away, give it a physical and a visual inspection. Where did you hear that, Phil? On the range in the NYPD police. Exactly. It's like embedded into your brain from day one. Before you holster your weapon, give it a physical and a visual inspection. So you physically make sure it's empty and you visually make sure it's empty before you holster the weapon. It's like it was ingrained. You're going to go clean that firearm and you want to make sure 100% there's going to be other people around you that that thing is empty. That God forbid that when you take it out to clean it, that you don't shoot and kill somebody. And again, when you take it out, even if you physically examine it, and put it in the holster, when you take it out, you're going to do it again. Safety is like paramount. They drill that into you. And, you know, they, somebody, uh, they said one of the person, uh, one of the people that resigned that the uh, first cameraman, I think it was first assistant cameraman. He said they were playing fast and loose. Obviously, obviously. Yep. I want to show a little bit of the, uh... George Snuffleupagus is, is interview on late night TV where he's basically slapping himself on the back talking about what an intense interview this was and how important it was and what a great job he's done he did. Wait, I got to pull I got to remove it. I didn't put the um Hang on one second. Yeah, he's uh he's doing a follow-up. If he's going on television and t- and talking about it and saying what an intense interview it was, he's doing some more follow-up for Baldwin. That's what it comes down to, you know. Uh, I don't know. He wasn't uh interviewing Charles Manson where he would uh, go on television talk shows and talk about it. Right. So imagine how Hang on, let's let's take this. Never. Yeah. <laughs> So for like your 20th anniversary, you had a brunch. <laughs> you had a romantic brunch. Um, Early bird special. Wait, let me just get uh, to you, them. I want to ask you uh, about a recent interview. Oh, here we go. That, here we uh, go. Received a lot of attention. Uh, you interviewed Alec Baldwin. You're the first person to interview him on camera. Um, I can only imagine how stressful it must be to talk to someone who has gone through the traumatic experience that he just went through. It was it was crazy. You know, I, I've probably done like you thousands of interviews over the last 20 years. I had never had an experience this intense. He, he walked in by himself, the entire crew went silent, and for the next hour, it was just minute by minute, gripping uh, emotion from him. And it's all so close to the surface. I mean, he's described as a one in a trillion accident. It was a one in a trillion accident, but he was holding the gun and his cinematographer is dead. How do you live with that? is something, you know, that was the big question I had for him. And it was so clear that this was all so close to the surface. I think, you know, he, he, he probably wasn't sitting down in the chair for a minute and a half before he started getting emotional. And the entire hour was like that. But to his credit, you know, he answered every question, went through the entire day with what happened. You know, the investigation is still going on. I think he just wanted to come out and, and, and say his side of the story and say how badly he felt. It's very wonderful when you can provide this sort of storytelling of the things that everybody is thinking about. And You know, why is it wonderful? Why does he get to vent on national TV and we're supposed to believe his bullshit story? And his, I, his, his, you know. Plus, I didn't hear him say that he felt so terrible. I never heard that. No. I didn't either. I, I, you know, I just. He didn't feel guilt at the end, he said. And, you know, he, he could have, 
he could have came across as as feeling uh, more terrible and remorseful about it, and he didn't. But look, Philly, one of the things that I find so egregious and such nonsense is this guy. You could tell his demeanor. He was asking. He was almost. It was almost like he's here in a confession, and he was the priest. He wasn't the pit bull interviewer he is when he interviews someone that he politically disagrees with, right. or someone he the guy who wrote the letter uh, against the crew about the non union stuff. He interviewed him too. You should have saw his demeanor. He was going after this guy like you wouldn't believe. Oh, why didn't you didn't do that? that? Yeah, why didn't you do that to Alec Baldwin? Uh, you know George Snuffleupagus because it was a love fest. The interview was a goddamn love fest. It was disgusting. He also left out some very important points. Like, for instance, why didn't he ask him, was there anyone on that set using that firearm to take target practice in the days prior to the horrible accident? That was probably one of the most important questions. And he didn't. Ask you know, you know, Philly, the way the most lies and the most corruption happens in this world is not by commission. It's by omission. Right. Pretend it's not there. Do not ask that question. Then no one will question whether you were lying or not telling the truth. I want to show a little bit, uh, and I want to pat ourselves on the back for bringing on the great John Pellucci, crime scene sergeant. I want to share a little bit of this because he does a great presentation on our last show showing how the gun works and whether or not the story Alec Baldwin told was credible whatsoever. And this is um, retired NYPD sergeant John Pellucci, a great crime scene uh, investigator. Well, uh, what we want to start with is operability. There's a distinction that needs to be made between an accidental discharge, which is nomenclature people use all the time, and uh, unintentional firing, right? An accident is an accident. It means that you have a defective firearm, right? So that's an accidental discharge versus an unintentional firing where you have a fully functioning weapon that you just, it's operator error, you mishandle it. So it's, we're dealing with revolvers. Let me first start with a cartridge, right? So this is a cartridge in this hand right here. This is a cartridge, it's not a bullet. So a cartridge has four components. You have the bullet, you have the cartridge case. On the bottom, you have the primer, which is impact sensitive, that little circle in the middle there, right? And then you have the powder that's inside. So now, the only way you're going to discharge a firearm, and we're talking about a firearm that takes a conventional cartridge, not like a musket or something like that. The only way it's going to discharge is if there's impact to this primer, and then that initiates the powder burning and causes the bullet to be forced out of the muzzle of the firearm, right? So here we have a primer, right? You see there's no, see that circle in the middle there, right? And here's another primer. This one's been fired. So you see there's a ding in the middle of it, right? That's from the firing pin striking it, okay? And that's the only way this firearm is going to discharge is if, if the firing pin strikes it. So if you have a fully functioning firearm, this is a revolver. This is a single and double action revolver, okay? Always before you do anything, demonstration or otherwise, you check and you make sure that it's not loaded. I can see this is not loaded, okay? This is called the cylinder, right? Within the cylinder, you have chambers. Right, so you can put a cartridge in each one of these chambers. Right, one of the first things I noticed when I read I read a couple articles. I haven't been following this thing too closely, but that uh, they call this a drum, right? And and then there's a loading gate. They call it a hatch. So you're supposed to be an armor on the set, like an armor and a gunsmith 
an armor essentially can take a gun apart and replace parts and put it all back together. In order to do that, you kind of know, need to know what the parts are called. So they're telling me that they don't know what the parts are called when they call this a drum, right? So this is a double action revolver. The reason it's double action, it's actually single and double action. When I pull the trigger, right? I pull the trigger, see the hammer goes back, right? And then it drops. Two things happen. I pull the trigger, hammer goes back, hammer drops. That's two things. That's double action. I could also fire this in single action where I pull the hammer back and then pull the trigger. Notice what happens to the trigger when I pull the hammer back. The trigger goes back. It's much more sensitive in single action. Single action is very sensitive. So I pull the trigger and the hammer drops. Now, if we look at this part of the firearm right here, this is called the firing pin aperture. Look at that hole right there. Okay, I'll come in from this side. Everything's reversed. So I'm kind of going backwards here. See that hole? That's the firing pin aperture, right? Now, I have to hold this cylinder release. You don't see any, watch, when I pull the trigger, see the firing pin coming through that hole? Okay, firing pin comes through the hole. It strikes the primer on the cartridge and a shot's fired. That's how it works, right? I could, I could do a double action. I got to hold this thing back. Okay, you see, my, see the firing pin coming through the aperture, striking the primer, right? I can take this thing and pull it halfway back all day long. Do you see the firing pin? No. When I pull the, when I pull the, uh, sorry, when I pull the uh, hammer back, now you see the firing pin. Okay. These guns are designed to be safe so that even idiots can handle them, right? This is a single action. This is what they're dealing with. So this is a more modern, this is a more modern revolver, right? This one here. It's, this is the kind of thing that, you know, we used to carry on patrol if you're a dinosaur, right? John, even though, even though this is not a 45 caliber like was used in the movie, this is a replica gun similar in style. It's a 22 caliber, but it's yeah. an old time gun. And it's for your purposes of this demonstration, it's a single action revolver and you can do the demonstration and it, it it operates exactly like the 45 does, correct? Exactly, yeah. I mean, there might be a couple differences in terms of a firing pin and stuff like that. But the whole thing is this gun is actually, the, the serial number comes back as a peacemaker, right? And the peacemaker is the old Colts like that Wyatt Earp used to carry and stuff like that. So this isn't even a replica. This is just a 1975 version of one of those firearms, right? So now the way these are loaded, you see, this is called a loading gate, right? The cartridges have to be loaded one at a time. See how the cylinder is locked, right? I can't turn this to load or unload. The only way to do that is to put it in this half-cocked position, right? This is fully cocked. This is half-cocked. Once I half-cock it like that, I can turn this cylinder. It's not a drum. It's a cylinder. To each individual chamber right and i can hit this ejector rod see the ejector rod coming out and i can eject uh discharge cartridge cases right and then i can go to the next one and the next one that's why you see like in the old westerns you know when they're when they're you know uh emptying out the gun after they get into a fire you know into a firefight 
right? So you do it one at a time. Same thing with loading it. It's loaded one at a time, right? Loaded one at a time, okay? And the way you do that is with this half cock safety, right? So now, you remember how I was able on this uh, revolver, I can kind of pull the, the hammer back halfway or most of the way, and we still don't see the firing pin come through the aperture, right? Remember we saw that? This is a totally different story because I need this half cock to turn the cylinder, right? To do my loading and unloading. That's that's a built-in mechanism to these old-time single-action uh, revolvers. And that's what they were using on the set. So now when I pull the, I pull the uh, hammer all the way back, The only way this hammer is going forward is by me pulling the trigger. That's it. Right? If I pull it halfway back, now I'm in the half cock mode. Right? It's not going to go past that half cock mode. So you're never going to have enough force on this hammer to activate the firing pin to strike your cartridge to cause a, a discharge. So, John, in essence, what we're trying to ask, and that was an outstanding demonstration, is that Alec Baldwin's story is totally a lie because there is no way, minus pulling that trigger, that that, that uh, firing pin can go forward. Uh, even he's claiming he pulled it back and it, it sl he let it go and it fired. That's yeah. not happening. Well, here, here's the thing. I, I have a little more time than I had talked about before, too. So we can go on a little bit if you want. But uh, Yeah, well, you guys are hams. I knew you'd be a ham, but it's all right. <laughs> yeah. well, you know, I, I thought that John Pellucci, I saw a lot of people on TV, a lot of ballistics experts, and did a, um, a firearm demonstration in regards to what Alec Baldwin's statement was. And I thought, and I'm prejudiced, obviously, I thought John Pellucci gave the best demonstration and made you really understand through him showing those two different firearms about whether or not that the pin, the um, hammer could go forward without pulling that trigger. And he it, obviously, he, he simplified it, Bill. He, it was great. He simplified it. And he brought up two very, very, very important points. One that the gun could not have been fired by other than pulling the trigger unless it was defective. So I'm sure that the law enforcement agencies that are handling this are going to do extensive testing on that gun. And I think chances are it's going to come back that it was a fully operable gun. What that means is, is that the only way, now he says he pulled it half back and then the gun went off. The only way, if it's fully operable and not defective, let me make that point again, not defective, it's fully operable. The only way it could go off of his is if it's cocked back, there's a live round inside the chamber, and the trigger is depressed. Now, the other point I wanted to make, the trigger being depressed on a single-action gun could be as little as a half a pound of pressure. That's what we refer to as a hair trigger. That's a good uh, depiction, Billy, when it's pulled back, fully cocked, fully hammered back. It only takes a half a pound of pressure. So his finger could have just brushed against that trigger, and it could easily go off. Very, very dangerous mode to be in. When that gun is cocked on a single action gun, uh, actually any gun that's in that position, it takes very little pressure on the uh, uh, depression on the trigger for the gun to go off. So he 
I'm not going to play devil's advocate and know, uh, say I know what was going through his mind or what he believes or what he thinks. I know what, what he's saying. It's physically impossible if the gun is fully operable to have gone off unless it was cocked all the way and the trigger was pulled. He may not remember that. That's possible. You know, in the heat of what went on and, and the, the uh, you know, the, the confusion, the excitement, the emotion, he might not think that he had his finger on that trigger. However, if the gun is fully operable, he definitely had it cocked and he pulled the trigger. Let's say by mistake, which I think it obviously was, but uh he, he may or may not be telling the truth. He could be remembering it that he didn't pull the trigger. However, he obviously did if it's an operable gun. But uh, we don't know whether he's telling the truth or not on what he will remember. Phil, he the, mo the most important test in regards to the firearm that the police are going to do uh, is called an operability test. And they're going to see, A, is the gun capable of firing a live round? And they'll do that test. And they'll also look at the gun and see if there was any possibility that the gun was mal could have malfunctioned and they'll do all those tests and that'll slam the door on all the people that say, Oh, the gun, the, the, the gun was uh, malfunctioned because they'll do all those tests to slam the door on a defense attorney trying to create doubt with whether or not the gun was operable, or whether the gun was defective, whether the gun could have gone off without pulling the trigger and the answer generally is, uh, and all ballistics experts will tell you this, is that uh, there's a one in a million chance that a gun could go off without pulling the trigger. In fact, most ballistics experts have never, ever seen a gun go off without someone having pulled the trigger. Yeah, you know, Bill, listen, if it's in that cocked position and it's dropped on the floor, they're saying, experts say that just the mere dropping it on the floor would not let the gun fire that would not cause the gun to fire. However, if there's a rock on the floor and something gets in between the trigger guard and that trigger that from dropping, it could make it go off. But, you know, you see in television and movies and, and, you know, in media in general, you know, uh, when they do skits, you know, they drop the gun and it goes off and stuff like that. It's not, if it's a fully operable firearm, that shouldn't happen unless something hits that trigger. Again, I'll make the point, it's sometimes as little as a half a pound of pressure, which is not a lot. When you have a double action gun, like the guns that we use, the uh, the Glock, which is a double action, or the Smith & Wesson, I think it's about 12 to 15 pounds of pressure needed to fully pull the trigger and make the gun fire around. You know, Philly, um, you, you don't want to bring in semi-autos into this conversation because it's a whole different animal. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that'll really confuse people. Let's take a quick break with this, Philly, and give this uh, Joe Murray his little commercial read here. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Uh, I just want to play a little bit more of this other interview. This is like part four of the interview with Alec Baldwin. I think this is when he talks about how he cocked a gun back and uh, somehow it, it, it went off. 
And uh, I think most of the people that we spoke with said that that is uh, an impossibility. So let's just look at this for a second. No audio, Bill. No audio. Let me it's just re- very very low. Yeah, let me remove this thing and uh, I'll put it back on there. This may be. Um, I mean, if this doesn't Bill, play you right, you and I are both familiar with. Uh, we were both in the series, The Perfect Murder, and we were familiar familiar with uh, camera angles and shots and the way that they cheat shots. They call it and stuff. So what they're going to talk about, you or I are both. Uh, you and I are both familiar with that. And a lot of what he says is really what does take place, and it is true. However, there's things in there that are not really accurate, and I'm sure you're gonna get to that again it's very low bill yeah i know it's a it's the video you can't turn up the volume yeah i did okay Bill, could you stop it right there and make a comment? What he was saying was, and it really does happen that way. The the uh, the director, the DP, the director of photography is telling him, you know, hold the gun this way, hold the gun that way, because they're using the camera to get the shot of just a pistol. And it's a very tight shot. So she's saying, move it this way, move it that way, tilt it up, tilt it down. That is all accurate. That really does happen. That's actually what the director of photography's job is. They want to get the best scene on the screen or on, uh, you know, from the camera's view, they want to get the best shot, the best angle where you could clearly see what they're trying to get across in that scene. So that's actually accurate what he's saying you and i both know that from being uh on uh, you know behind and in front of the camera all right let me get the uh we'll play the rest of this um okay so basically what i wanted to get there was that he says he let go of the hammer uh, on the gun and the gun goes off that was the whole point of John Pelucci's demonstration was that he's obviously not telling the truth uh, that. And the other scary thing was that the uh, assistant director, John Halls, he, he also says Alec never pulled the trigger. I would love to know where he was standing because the play, the room where the shot was fired was very dark. How could he tell unless he was on his left side, he couldn't even tell because his finger had to be, along the right side of the gun where he couldn't see it unless he was on Alex's right. So I would love to question him as to where were you when you saw his finger not pull the trigger. But not only that, Billy, wouldn't he be now he he's, he's the assistant director, right? The AD. So wouldn't he now, obviously the director of photography is going to be looking at the little monitor on the camera. Wouldn't he be looking in the same direction? Or I mean, he would really have to have his eyes at the moment the shot went off on Alec Baldwin's hand and what position his his trigger finger was in. So why would he be watching that when she's trying to get the shot or the angle 
on, you know, with the camera, he'd be watching to me, I would think he'd be watching the monitor on the camera. So I don't know, maybe from the monitor, he's saying from viewing the monitor, he could see where the, the trigger finger was, I guess that's possible, but, uh, I don't know. He's, he's, you know, they, they may, they may have, you know, getting their story straight. That That's what it sounds like to me. Uh, Kerry O'Connell, what's a practical example of 12 pounds pull, like putting a car in gear that has the stick on the steering wheel? Well, I know that our old Smith & Wesson revolvers in double action mode used to have a 14.7 pound pull, which was pretty, they wanted it to be tough to pull the trigger because they didn't want accidental discharges. Also, right. you're living with a gun 24-7. If you're in a radio car, you put your hand touches the trigger. They didn't want it just they go off accidentally. Phil, I don't know if you can answer that. What is the practical example of a 12? I mean, a, a practical example, uh, I don't know, maybe, um, I was going to say maybe putting your seatbelt on or opening a car door. I don't know. It, it, it's kind of hard to really put it in uh, a practical sense because don't forget, you're just using your finger, your index finger. Your trigger finger is what's pulling on that. So when you grab something with your hand, 12 pounds of pressure might not seem like a lot, especially if you're pulling with your body weight. But when you, you have something in your hand and you're using just your finger, that makes a big difference. I guess that's a better way to explain it, you know. Uh, it would be like trying to uh, move something with just your finger without your, the, the help of your wrist and your arm and the rest of your body, just your finger. So 12 14, whatever it, uh, you said, it's 14.7. I always knew that uh, double action was anywhere from like 12 to 16 pounds of pressure was the general. I think on rifles, it's a little more um, like 16. But uh, again, don't forget, it's just your finger that's doing the the pulling and, and applying the pressure. So it may not seem like it's a lot, but when it's just your finger that's working that, that action on a firearm, yeah, it could be, don't get me wrong, it's not impossible. It, they don't make it where it's impossible. But you, like you stated, Billy, they want it to be uh, enough pressure that you don't have an accidental discharge. You know, at the top of the hour, we was talking about how the press, uh, at least in, even in the last few weeks, has been so egregious in their coverage. And, uh, you know, we now realize the, the the Smollett case where he was totally shown, he's convicted of five out of six charges, that he was lying. And the way the press reported that case was nothing more than disgraceful. They were calling basically for the charges to be dropped. The initial DA didn't even want to proceed. They had to get a special prosecutor to prosecute this guy. And the media and going right up to the president of the United States made statements about as if he was telling the truth. It turned out he was 100% lying. Not only was he lying, but he got on the stand and lied for six hours. I, and the media was covering it as if he were telling the truth. And our part of our hypothesis at the beginning of the show is what the hell is going on with the media in this country? Another example are the Cuomo brothers. For years, you know, Chris Cuomo just pounded an ideology. And then when he gets caught uh, trying to support his brother and going after the people who accused his brother of uh, a, a sexual thing, a um, sexual harassment, sexual harassment, sexual he starts trying to find out information while he's a reporter at CNN. What does it take to put the and And then CNN acts as if, oh, my God, we knew nothing about that. Round up the usual suspects. You know what I mean? It's just, it doesn't fit, as they say, it doesn't fit the smell test. I want to play a little bit of this. 
He is leaving his Sirius XM radio show just days after CNN fired him. He also reportedly plans to sue CNN for a big chunk of change. Chris Cuomo also facing sexual misconduct accusations, as is his fellow anchor, Don Lemon, who faces claims he acted inappropriately toward a man in a bar on, Los on Long Island in 2018. That accuser went after the network, saying, quote, they're a predator-protecting machine. They slander and smear victims with impunity. They are complicit. This is who they are. That's from an alleged victim. Joe. Wow. Well, I guess this is the uh, turmoil segment, because speaking of turmoil, <laughs> CNN should just be called the Chaos News Network at this point, at least internally, right? I mean, first you have Chris Cuomo, who you brought up, the guy who wasn't reprimanded for faking his own quarantine when he had COVID, the guy who wasn't reprimanded for coaching those appearing on the network before interviews on questions and answers. That's fireable alone. The guy who received COVID testing before anyone else did in New York, courtesy of his brother, the guy who attempted to smear credible accusers of sexual harassment and lied about doing so. And now he's going to sue CNN for millions because he says top brass knew about everything he was doing and was okay with it. Boy, if this goes to trial, can you imagine what the discovery stage is going to look like? Because this isn't like the old mob, right? You've seen Goodfellas. You use a payphone, so the conversation isn't recorded. You get the feeling there's a paper trail here, Harris. Emails, oh, yeah. texts, you name it. Uh, you know, and then you have, to your point, uh, anchor Don Lemon. All right, hold now on. Let's, yeah, let's slow let's the train for just a second, because you mentioned a key <laughs> point, what I call receipts. You talked about that paper trail, the digital yeah. trail with Jesse Smollett. Did you see this one coming? The intersection of Jesse Smollett on trial right now and Don Lemon. Yesterday, he testified, Smollett, that he got text messages from Don Lemon, supposedly relaying that the Chicago Police Department didn't believe Smollett's accounting of what happened. And at the time, Lemon told his viewers that the story was personal since they were acquaintances and they had texted after the alleged 2019 incident. What to make mm -hmm. of this? Comments, Philly. Oh, well, let's start with uh, Kim Fox, who was the prosecutor in Chicago that initially brought charges and then dropped the charges. It's alleged that Michelle Obama reached out to her, I guess, the Chicago uh, Dirty politics uh, rumor isn't as dead as uh, people really think it is. Uh, she reached out and uh, lo and behold, the charges were dropped. However, the special prosecutor came in since there was such an outrage and an uproar over the fact that it was obvious. And here's where the media really, really, uh, you know, is just doing a disservice to uh, the people of the, the country. Um, when it was obvious when, when they, they, figured out who it was that was on the street, the, the two brothers, I think it's our, our Sowendo brothers, or I can't, I can't really pronounce the name, but uh, there are two uh, African immigrants that worked on a movie set with, uh, with Jesse Smollett. Um, when they found out who they were and it was obvious there was a connection between them and him and it was a staged uh, attack, uh, a staged racial bias attack that he tried to claim that it was uh, MAGA supporters, uh, tried to put the blame on, Donald Trump. And at the time, you know, the uh, media in general, and I'm talking about a good chunk of the media, was anti-Trump. So the narrative was picked up and they carried the water for Smollett. But then once it was exposed that it was nonsense, that it was all uh, staged, 
and they still continued. That's the thing that gets me. I mean, you, you know, you could say, all right, two days after let's put this guy on and they do an interview. And when nobody really knows the facts of the case, but they, this went on for months and months where they were defending this guy. And it was quite obvious that there was political favor with the prosecutor, Kim Fox. And there was, uh, obviously a staged, uh, anti-bias racial attack, uh, because he was gay and they try to blame it on, uh, on the MAGA supporters. So the whole thing was a load of nonsense and it was continually carried down the road. And then you have Don Lemon who makes a phone call early on in the investigation to Smollett and says, listen, the cops don't believe your story. He's giving them the friggin' heads up. Uh, it just drives me crazy because, you know, when there's an interview and I think right from the jump, law enforcement saw that it was nonsense. None of the facts were making sense and they probably drilled down on him. He held back his medical records. He held back his cell phone conversations, his text messages that uh, probably wound, they wound up getting with subpoenas, but they asked him to offer it and he refused. There was a lot of things when he became uncooperative with the whole investigation. And here you have a news media figure like Don Lamont that's in prime time every day, giving him a heads up. Hey buddy, the police ain't buying your story. That is, he should be fired for that. He should be right in the, in the hopper with uh, Fredo. And isn't that, hey, wait, is it, isn't that tampering? Let me just play a little bit of this, but isn't that tampering with a witness? Uh, I don't know if it's tampering with a witness. It's definitely impeding an investigation for sure. Let, let's see what Fredo has to say here. And this guy's a somebody, which makes it more interesting. The MAGA angle, the fact that these cases are often given short shrift, and the goal is to expose an animus that must be put down. That's all fine. So what does it mean if it's fake? It means this one is a fake. Smollett is a fake. That's all it means. But at the same time, denying that reality or soft peddling it would be a mistake. We do victims of any such violence no favors by coddling Smollett because he's going through something or because the police seem so intent on disproving him. Those are not good counters to the current understanding. If he's not telling the truth and some twist themselves up trying to make it okay, shame on them. Owning what this was, not what it was said to be, validates the truth and that's what should matter most we do no favor to victims by mitigating the significance of a faker i'm sure there may be complicating factors about his life and experience etc and that's part of the conversation but coddling is not kindness it's capitulation to making a narrative more powerful than the truth and yes it's also true that black people get attacked and they go missing and they get trafficked in city streets all across this country and ignored their rights are abused, sometimes systematically. And all of it is too often known and ignored. None of that has helped by hiding from the reality here. Own what this is, and you can own whatever else happens. Fight the reality here, and you give those who would question the realities a prima facie case of fake outrage that will become a cudgel in future instances that do demand attention. It's about truth. The truth of injustice is not helped by covering in any way for Smollett if he committed an injustice. Nothing about this is comfortable or okay. This stinks. But the commodity for us is always accuracy in information and in impact. Don't lose sight of that. Accuracy in information? Is that really coming out of his mouth? Things worse. <laughs> He's Fact so full of it. Passion to make 
everything about what is wrong for those who advocate for minority rights at first, and now this rush to make it proof that so much of the concern over such cases is overblown. The truth matters, period. But why are some on the right so determined to make this situation speak to what they see as a broader bias? Are they similar, you know, they have similar motivation to unearth bogus accounts that suit them? Of course not. So the lesson here is simple. Don't look for high ground. Look for the truth. And that will lead us where we need to be. That's all I have for tonight. Thank you for watching CNN. It's hard to listen to, to Fredo there talk about what the truth is, the truth, justice, and the American way, since him and his brother are two uh, people not to be believed. I mean, here he is trying to go get the people that accused his brother of sexual harassment, and there's evidence, text. He's going to other reporters. What do you got on this person? That's the guy you're going to take truth, justice, and the American way? Someone said about the Cuomo brothers, they started life on third base. And they try to act like they, they were pulled up by their bootstraps. Please stop. Listen, Billy, he talks about truth. Him, of all people, wants to talk about truth. Well, why don't he say the truth when there were cities burning and he says, where is it say that a, a, a protest has to be peaceful? That's not truth. That's fantasy. That's a narrative. That's a load of you know what? BS. And listen, the guy who's the biggest liar of them all, he came out of the basement. He supposedly was in quarantine for 10 days. Meanwhile, he was out riding a bike and he got into an argument with one of his neighbors. <laughs> Talk about truth. He's full of shit and plain English. I don't yeah. even want to discuss him. Listen, he's gone. They should have made it a trio. Don Lemon should be uh, taken off. You know, police officers have to live to a higher standard. Okay. And what I mean by that is this, if you're drunk, when you're off duty, you get suspended. Uh, if you're, you know, involved in, uh, someone that has a criminal activity, you could lose your job. Uh, you can't go to a party and smoke a joint, obviously can't even be around it. So we have that standard because we're in law enforcement. Don't reporters who report the news and, 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 allegedly report facts. Don't they have a standard that they have to live by too? And Don Lemon did not live by that standard when he texted or, or conversated with Jesse Smollett and said, listen, the police don't believe your story. He obviously had sources that were telling him that. And he passed the information on to him like heads up, brother. You know, they're not believing you. They're not buying your bullshit. That's what it comes down to. And I think CNN, if they want to save face, they want to call themselves. I mean, they used to be a tremendous news network years ago. I did interviews with them in the nineties and they were credible. Now their credibility is in the toilet. They have one ounce of credibility left in them. They should fire him tomorrow, at least suspend him for what he did. I think firing is probably the right way to go, but how could he still come on and report as, you know, being uh, ethical or having some kind of, uh, you know, uh, prestige or some type of, he, he doesn't have, uh, he doesn't have, uh, I can't think of a word, you know, he, he doesn't have any credibility anymore. That's it. He has no, yeah, no, you know, I think that it's actually tampering with a witness to answer real robo who just asked the question. Wouldn't that be obstruction of justice? Canon. You sound like one of my old students that used to just call me Canon instead of professor Canon. They say, Hey, Canon. I think, I think, yeah, it would be tampering with a witness and obstructing justice too. Yeah. And the, the crazy thing is, and I want to put this out there too, is that Fox news does some of the same things that CNN does. So we don't want to just come down on 
uh, CNN or left-wing media. MSNBC is out of their mind, too. A lot of the networks, you just saw the the softball game that uh, um, Stephanopoulos or Snuffleupagus, whatever you, George Snuffleupagus did with Al Baldwin. Disgrace. There's no credibility to that. And then he has the balls to go on late-night TV and Good Morning America and say, it was one of the toughest interviews I've ever done. It was, And you could see it was edited, too. I mean, they're doing edits. They're doing cuts. Oh, it must have been really tough when he said something he didn't like to say, and you cut it out because it didn't look good. You know, I just also like to mention the guy Jeffrey Tubin on CNN that was spanking his carrot doing a Zoom meeting, and he still <laughs> he still has his job. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, you can't get fired for doing that on the air. What what does it take to get fired from CNN? You know, you, you know, for people that don't know what happened, he's spanking his camera. I love that one, Billy. He was on a Zoom. He was doing some type of a, a broadcast, and I, I, I don't think it was broadcast live. But while he was on camera, he began masturbating. He, he exposed himself and began, and it was seen by other people and his, uh, you know, his colleagues. And yet they, they, it wasn't broadcast, I don't think, but they kept them on. Yeah, you're right. It's- yeah, and then, but then he like went on the air the next night and some female reporter interviewed him about it. And I was just like, this isn't real. This is not happening. And he's like apologizing. Oh, I shouldn't have been spanking the carrot during this meeting, you know? I was just like, are you kidding me? I mean, this is, this is where we're at in the news media. This is where we are at. It's crazy. Isn't he CNN? He's CNN, correct? Yeah, his name is Jeffrey Tubin. The carrot spanker. They need to start. Listen, they, they got to rebrand themselves. If they <laughs> in Canada, they said he pulled his goalie. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. Real life is much more strange than fiction. You know, it's really spanking the monkey, you know, whatever you want to say, beating the bishop, you could say a million things, but uh, there's quite a few. It's just, it's just, you know, what my whole dissertation on this is just that where is media coming? Where are they going? Where is truth? They're all liars. You saw Fredo standing up there and talking about the truth as he goes after, you know, the Cuomo's are bullies. Let's, let's get that out there right there. Both of them are bullies. bullies, They're intimidators. The governor was the worst and Garrett, you know, see, he's got $18 million in his war chest. He's going to let like a six months or a year go by. He's going to run for office again. These people will forget about it. They'll forget about the 15 million uh, old people that died in nursing homes. You know, they'll forget that he wrote a book and got a $5 million advance while he's working and used state employees. Meanwhile, when we were cops, people would want to put us in prison for taking a cup of coffee. You know, and this guy's making $5 million work. It's, it's just pathetic. And when you try, try to talk about truth, there, there is no truth in politics. It's and and, and or, or in the media for that matter, no truth whatsoever. You know, Billy, I just saw on LinkedIn that there's an opening for dog catcher up in Austin. Maybe yeah. uh, not far from Albany. You know, maybe uh, yeah. illustrious Andrew Cuomo. He could uh, run for that office. I will guarantee you that Christopher Cuomo uh, gets the eighteen million dollars that uh, CNN. I cannot believe that he they paid him $6 million a year for reporting the drivel that he reported all those years. He was paid $6 million a year. Don't just, forget, too, he, if he's got $18 million coming to him, he hires a top-notch law firm, and they have tremendous incentive. Even if they get 10%, that's $1.8 million. Uh, 
they have a tremendous incentive to fight uh, CNN and get that money. And I think based on the fact that he's going to say that he was in touch with them and, you know, he initially came out when the stuff started with his brother and says, I can't report on it. But I'm sure they knew he was in touch with him. It's his brother. And uh, I, I really don't have a problem with trying to help your brother out. But he was in a position. It would be like me trying to help my brother if I was still in law enforcement, you know, and he's he's dealing with a major drug case or something. You know, it's a, it's a conflict, you know. So Let me tell you, Mo Beans, New Jersey, she says, I can't imagine that Andrew's running again. He's done. Let me tell you something. Uh, He'll go to Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton go, Andrew. Let me tell you, Andrew. This is what you got to do. You got you got to tell some of those women. Well, you know that. Don't ever use their name. Say that woman. That woman. Uh, I didn't do anything to that woman. <laughs> Listen. You know what? Uh, right at this point, Mobines, New Jersey. Everybody probably feels that way. But don't forget, we live in the United States of America. We're a very forgiving country. We are, and I don't think it's a bad thing. I think that we where our country is built on Judeo-Christian values and it's in the Bible that you're supposed to forgive and forget and turn the other cheek. And I'm not saying that that's what we should do with Andrew Cuomo. He should be done. As far as I'm concerned, he's got no place in politics. He killed 15,000 people. But there might be somewhere, somehow, down the line, some office in, you know, uh, I don't know what he's going to run for. Like I said, maybe dog catcher, but it's possible. I don't think it's a good possibility, but it's possible. On the other hand, now, Fredo, Chris Cuomo, I think you will definitely see him back in the media sometime in the future because he's going to he's going to really have a lot of sympathy saying, well, I was just trying to help out my brother. I didn't mean to cross any lines. I didn't mean to cross any ethical uh, values and standards with, uh, you know, that's what he's going to do. He's going to Phil, uh, you are you are 100 percent correct that this country has a very short memory. Yes. Uh, Andrew Cuomo will let like a year go by. He's got $18 million to start buying commercials and all of that stuff. Before you know it, I mean, the only one that got slam dunked was Elliot Spitzer because he was uh, he was having sex with a prostitute. Don't a count high- him out, though, Bill. You never know. He, he could come back, too. You know, the spank, the guy spanking his carrot on CNN still has yeah. a job. Jeffrey Tubin. You know? A lot of times with politics, it's about money. You're making a great, great point that there's 18 million in his war chest for Cuomo. That money can buy a lot of ad space and get a lot of forgiveness, if you know what I mean, with people. You know, you you start throwing commercials out, and he he gives that mundane speech, and he comes across good on camera. He's good. He's a tremendous actor. Maybe he you should know, look at the even even when Andrew Cuomo was asked questions in the deposition, it almost sounded like he was doing a speech each time he answered. You know, it was his COVID update. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, I used to love it. COVID. We believe in science, and when the science tells <laughs> us that the science and the science, yeah. because that's like a left wing word. You say the word science. Oh, and right. the right doesn't believe in science. I believe in science, except if it goes against your ideology, Andrew. Then you don't believe in science so much, right. but you believe in science when it proves your left wing ideology. But then. When it goes against it, I now I don't believe in science because of this, you know. But it's it's pathetic, folks. As you can see, this is police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you're not subscribed to us, what are you waiting for? Give you want to have, yeah, you give us that thumbs up, hit that subscribe button. We have a lot of laughs. You know, I do my show, Coffee with Cannon, every other day. I got people from all over the world talking. We were uh, talking about different types of butter. <laughs> if you like Irish Irish butter, we talk about that all day. You dipped in butter. We talk about all kinds of things. We have a lot of laughs, but a lot of the show is very serious, too. We do real crime stories. Uh, we're coming up with some unbelievable guests all the time. 
And, you know, something like we joke about this, but this stuff with the media, the media is, is destroying this country by lying. And that goes for both sides, the right and the left. But they put out four or they just pound the shit out of their political enemies. And it's just like, who's paying these guys? You know, it's just like, is that what their job is or is their job to report the news? The only thing you can get, maybe, and it's not true all the time either, is the weather. They even make up the weather sometimes, you know? <laughs> You know, it's funny, Billy. Sometimes you'll watch the news, and if you look at different stations and different channels, just try and do that sometimes, folks. If you're, if you're in the United States, whether it be New York or wherever you are, when a, a, a big story comes on or where they're talking about it, you try to look at other stations, and you'll see the narrative between CNN, MSNBC, uh, CNBC. They have the same talking points. It's like they're reading off the same script. And I, I mean, listen, everybody's got their own opinion, but exactly the same lines they're using, the same, the science, like you said, they'll use that word. Or so a, a lot of times uh, they, they, uh, they, you know, they, they corroborate together and they coordinate. Uh, that's the right word. They coordinate, you know, and they're putting it out there. And it sounds like everybody's reading from the same recipe. You know, Phil, I was doing stand-up comic one day, and I was doing a, a real a rant about um, conservative stuff. And this little weasel, this young comic in the audience, who's about maybe 18, 19 years old, and he goes, I should at least get comprehensive health care and comprehensive. I said, dude, you know what you need? You need a comprehensive job and shut up about all these government handouts. You're 18 years old. You're a piece of shit. You know, get a job. Join the Marines. You're disgusting. You know, I was like, <laughs> yeah, good old days. Join the Marines. That's, yeah, that's yeah. what a lot of these young guys need. They need a little kick in the ass, you know. They, but, they need the Marine Corps. I don't know, but I've been told any little woman ain't got no soul. Sound off. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. <laughs> and My I was never I was never a Marine. I was never a Marine. I just had to learn that song. See that what's up there? That's my dad's Marine Corps flag. It's a memory of my dad. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. You know, Phil, we're at uh, an hour and 17 minutes. We get carried away with ourselves because we're such narcissists. We just keep talking and love ourselves and love the adulation we get from our chat so we love our subscribers that's we, lo we, we love, love you guys fans. and you know it, it's so much fun doing this show and uh you know it's almost like when i first became a cop i like loved being a cop i used to be like oh man i get paid this is great going to work chasing bad guys you know it was it was it was so much fun and simplify that's right kh walker simplify and on the police department we say fidelis ad mortem and that's the um, the motto of the Honor Legion, which Phil and I are both members of, and it stands for Faithful Until Death. And that's the 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 motto. And Lieutenant Pete, I know he's a, he's a longtime member of the Honor Legion, probably a lot of other people in the chat are members of the NYPD Honor Legion, and it's a real honor, and I want to double use that word, to be in the Honor Legion. I think less than 10% of the job are actually uh, invited to be in the Honor Legion because you have to have a commendation or higher to get in, invited into the honor legion. So I've been a member since 1987 and Phil, I don't know, maybe even longer than that. So, um, look, what can I say, man? We, we had a lot of fun. We rant sometimes, you know, I call my show in the day coffee with cannon, but it sometimes becomes bitching with bill. <laughs> I start, I go on a rant and I start bitching all day, but you know, it's fun. It's fun. Phil last words. Last words, looking forward to Monday night's Christmas show. I got a couple of really good Christmas stories um, I'm bringing on. 
to tell the one from Christmas Day, I believe it was 1983 or 84. Joe Calderero, who's a retired lieutenant from the job. Uh, he knows Mike Heinrichs. Uh, Joe was a sergeant in the 6-7 when Mike was there. Uh, I'm sure we're going to have a good time. One thing I want, one other thing I want to say, it's the holiday season. We're getting close to Christmas time. Um, guys, uh, brothers and sisters in blue, please, please be extra careful, extra safe. Get home to your families. This time of year is always... Uh, a little bit shaky. There's always seems to be a little uh, like cops get hurt and stuff like that, or these, these different incidents take place. So uh, just uh, look before you leap, take that little extra second to uh, make sure that you're safe, watch your back, watch your partner's back and get home to your families. And I hope everybody has a safe, healthy, happy holiday season. Yeah. And folks, uh, anyone feeling low or feeling blue, you want to email us at uh, police off the cuff the number one at gmail.com. I'll correspond to you. I can't give my cell phone number out over the air because uh, we're so popular. I'd be getting phone calls <laughs> all over the place. But if you're having some, you're feeling the holiday blues or anything like that, and I could uh, you email me, I'll talk to you. You know what I mean? That's uh, all part of it. And Philly would too. I'll, I'll, I'll refer. If I get a lot of emails, I'm going to refer to Phil too. You know, because no and Phil could speak to you in Italian too. So if you all the Italian people, you have a little holiday blues. I'm referring to Philly. <laughs> I'll take you out for a veal cutlet parmesan. That's right. That's right. Uh, so, folks, you know, thank you. We, as I said, we love doing this show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for supporting Police Off the Cuff. And please, everyone, be safe. God bless. Stay safe, everybody. One episode, just